The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. man power trip of wrestling i'm your host jp john pause with me today very very special guest former two-time cwa world and tag team champion he's of course a former wcw superstar and wwf superstar man mountain rock aka mr max Payne. max welcome to two-man power trip how you doing my pleasure i'm doing great awesome to see you i feel like you've been out of the the loop so what have you been up to well i really have been out of the loop i um I left the business uh, in 96, and uh, I, I really never looked back from that point forward because I, I took a different challenge. I, I raised my family and stayed home and watched my kids walk across the stage for high school graduation and, you know, played the dad thing. And, um, you know, it just was... Uh, I left the business under some really dark circumstances for me. And um, I just, I really, you know, it's funny because I, I really knew that someday I would be back. I just, I wasn't ready. And, um, you know, I got an invite to uh, a wrestling, to a signing. And um, this guy called me and tracked me down, figured out how to get a hold of me because I guess I was hard to get a hold of. I didn't. I didn't really set forth to make that the situation. It just ended up being that way. But in in retrospect, it was a good thing for me because um, it kept me alive staying out of the business. The business, as you know, is very, very, it's tough. It's a tough business. And um, so when I left, I, you know, I knew I was never going to wrestle again. I, I knew the day that I retired, I, I said, that's it. I'm not, I'm not falling down no more. So I uh, I left and proceeded to um, teach myself how to be a musical engineer and teach myself how to be a producer and teach myself how to be a songwriter and play the guitar and the bass and the keyboard. And I just spent the last 30 years, 25 years of my life uh, enjoying it. So it's not really just a gimmick, the, the being able to play the guitar and stuff. You actually can. You know, uh, that, that's one of the biggest, 
that's probably the biggest reason that um, I was so discouraged because I never understood. Uh, I, I proved to more than one promoter that the people liked what I was doing. I, in fact, um, I'm working on a project right now to show how my reception went during the time. So I, as you can imagine, um, to leave the stage with crowds cheering for you and then have those around you tell you, you suck, um, to, it made it difficult to say the least. So yeah, I can play the guitar. Um, I am dealing with some physical stuff right now to get my guitar playing back. And uh, I got to tell you, uh, everything that could go wrong with my body to try and stop me from playing the guitar has been just haunting me for the last mm. um, couple, three years. And now I've got to have carpal tunnel surgery and I've got to have a nerve moved off of my ulna. And it's in order for me, I'm losing the feeling in my right hand. So I'm going to, I'm still going to play. I can still play right now. Um, lost a shoulder. Uh, I got a problem in my neck. So anyway, just, you know, all wrestling injuries. And unfortunately they seem to have sort of focused on the things I use the most to play the guitar with. So, but I can, I can still play and uh, I'm going to have this surgery and have my arm fixed too. So I'll be fine. But yes, um, that was part of the reason I did the gimmick is I wanted to, you know, I, I've told this story before. Um, when I played the national anthem, at, uh, I think it was Super Brawl 2. Um, the first guy that met me when I walked off the stage was Harley Race. And he had tears in his eyes. It was amazing because I'm like, I didn't even know Harley. I hadn't even met him yet, really. And uh, I went out there and played, and he was the first guy that met me coming off the stage with tears in his eyes, and he said, God damn, man, you were playing. And I go, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just, one of those, it's just one of those things. It's funny because I can really play, and I've been compared to, like, honky-tonk, man. And, uh, like, honky-tonk, there's a, you know, you read stuff on the Internet where it says, like, you know, top 10 guitar players ever in the wrestling business. I was like seventh and it's like honky tonk was number one, which is fine. I get it. It's a, it's the gimmick of wrestling, but yes. that's part of the reason I struggled so much is it wasn't a gimmick, you know, it's who I am. And so it, it made it difficult. And I, I guess, like I said, I just never understood why nobody ever went, shit, we can make some money with this, you know? And they, they just didn't. And I, I'm, I'm not going to take away my culpability in this because I, I'm not perfect either, but I just never, I guess I never understood so many guys, so many of the boys in the business have burned their bridges in the past. And then miraculously they show back up on WWF or, or now WWE and I, I never understood how, uh, for whatever reason, maybe it was because I just elected to vacate. You know what I mean? Yep. So that's the only reason I can think of that it went south. But I, I love playing the guitar. I thought it worked well with the gimmick. My true intention was I, what I really wanted to be was to be like the house band. You know, I wanted to build a house band for Vince so that, you know, we could support, you know, 
because if I'm a wrestler, it would only make sense to play live music, write their help them write their themes and do all that stuff. And uh, I just, for whatever reason, I must have pissed people off bad enough that they didn't want me back. So I left it at that. With Harley Race, too, he's not known as being an emotional guy. I mean, at all. I know. I, exactly, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the thing that, that just was so cool about Harley is he was, you know, he's not one of those guys that you normally would expect. I mean, I like I said, I, it had such a huge impact on me. because I'm just trying to fix my camera. It's being a little bit grumpy here. I'm trying to give you a little better light source. There we go. I think that's better. Um, he was, uh, it shocked me. The only other person that was there was Chris Benoit because he and I were roommates in Japan. So Chris was standing there and Harley Race was standing there and, and, um, it was a, it was an amazing moment. And Chris, I guess was somewhat of a buddy of yours, right? I mean, he got you into a few. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so where did, yeah. where did you end up meeting him to begin with to, to even be roommates with him in Japan? So I'll tell you, it's a it's a pretty crazy story. We met in Los Angeles at a restaurant for the first time on our way to Japan. So if we would have hated each other, uh, we would have truly been. Do you, can I cuss or is this sure? Crazy? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, it would have been it would have been ridiculous, you know. And uh, but it wasn't Chris. Chris and I got along so good. We had so much fun. I mean, I. I mean, talk about living a wrestler's dream come true. You know, I got to live in Japan and train in a dojo with all the legends of New Japan Pro Wrestling. And, you know, I I, I respect the hell out of that. The Japanese really struggled with me because I wasn't a young boy. You know, I already had my, my own ideas, what I wanted to do with my gimmick. And they wanted to give me a gimmick. And... I, you know, uh, most people go, you stupid fuck. Why don't you just take the gimmick and take the money? And right. You know what I mean? And by then I already knew what I was going to do. I'd already started um, practicing my guitar. I remember sitting in a Japanese hotel with uh, Tom Pritchard. And I told him, I said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to teach myself how to play the guitar badass enough that I can play it in the ring. And uh, and I'm going to call myself Max Payne. And uh, the Japanese didn't like that. So they basically, they invited me back for a couple of other tours. But then uh, I never heard from them again. And by the time I left... Uh, the WCW, they had just entered into a deal with the WCW right when I left. So I, I just, it was, you know, happenstance that I missed the W, the, the New Japan coming into the WCW. And by then, uh, at, at that point in time, like I said, I, I was, I was feeling pretty discouraged, especially after I went to New York and just, got pummeled you know just had a had a rough time there and uh some of it was my own making um some of it was their making i it's okay like i said i'm i don't hold any grudges against in fact i've said this and i will continue to say this the rest of my life had i not left the wrestling business um i would be by the wayside with my friends uh chris and brian adams and 
you know, so Kurt Henning, you know, Mike Hegstrand, you know, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. And it's, it's sad as hell. But if I hadn't left the wrestling business, I would just be, I would have just been another statistic, another dead wrestler, you know? And uh, that's probably what saved my life was leaving the business and going home and taking care of my family. Just rewinding back to the New Japan Dojo, what was that like? Is, are you and Chris the only gaijins there? Are you like, yep. are you treated just, just basically like everybody else? They don't give you any preferential treatment. It's it's like the dog days of summer. It's tough, tough dealings. Oh, I, I thought I was a badass. I did because I was an amateur wrestler for. 13 years and uh, had wrestled all through school. And, and uh, I thought I was a pretty badass guy because I made it through Iowa State's room and I was a national champion on a national championship team in junior college. And I thought I could handle anything, but I'll, I'll tell you right now, the dojo um, was one of the toughest things I ever did. If not the toughest, I might have to say that it was the toughest to survive. And yet at the same time, uh, an experience I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. How'd you get into the dojo? Like, how do they recognize you and, you know, call you to L.A. with Chris and get you guys over there? So uh, I had this miraculous day when I graduated from school. I graduated from school with a degree in television and film. And so I... Um, it's a long story. I'll, I'll keep it short. I When I graduated, I was in a movie when I was 16 years old called Takedown, and it changed my life forever. You know, it's typical of a child actor kind of thing. And I got this job in Takedown. And it's funny because I'd already loved acting. And, you know, I, I used to impersonate Monty Python for my family and do all kinds of crazy stuff like that, wrote songs and make them laugh. And so it was really an easy, uh, an easy thing for me to do to, to want to go to school to be um, good at television and film and understand it from the ground up. That's why I did it. I, I wanted to go understand how film and television were made from the ground up. And so uh, I had dropped the year that takedown was made was a big year in my life, 1978 in March from January to March. I worked on this motion picture. At the time, I was still wrestling in high school. So instead of riding with the team to all of our duels uh, and tournaments, I would drive myself there. And since all the referees knew me, I didn't have to weigh in. So they all knew I was over 175 pounds. So I drove myself to all these, uh, all the matches. And um, I just, I, I, it was a tough year. And then I got, after the, the movie was over, I, I, I couldn't go back to school. I hated school. I ended up getting married. And in December of that same year, I had my first child. So as you can plainly see, it was a, it was a big year for me. So I dropped out of high school when I was a junior. And um, a guy named uh, Tommy Chesborough from Oklahoma State, coach from Oklahoma State, had already called me as a junior and said, I talked to you because my coach was a uh, high school coach was a uh, NCAA division one referee. And so he knew everybody. And, you know, he told Oklahoma state, Hey, I got a big heavyweight. And uh, anyway, bottom line was I, 
I talked to this guy from Oklahoma State. He said, I said, hey, I want to, I still want to come there. He said, go get your graduation equivalency diploma and I'll get you to Oklahoma State. And by the time I got it, I, I actually got it and called him on the phone. And I don't think he was expecting my call. And I said, hey, I want to come to Oklahoma State. He said, oh, I don't have any scholarships right now. Would you consider a junior college? I said, yes. So I went to a junior college for two years. And like I said, was a national champion there and then was recruited by schools all over the country. And I'd actually talked to Iowa State when I was 17 years old. I'd, I'd gone back to, actually, I was still 16. I drove to Des Moines, Iowa. That's where my ex-wife was from, born and raised in Iowa. And so we drove to uh, Des Moines. I lived in U We lived in Utah. We drove to Des Moines. And her uncle took me to meet the coach from Iowa State. I ended up going to Iowa State for three years and got my degree in television and film. And uh, when I... When I left school, I went home and the director of photography for the movie I was in um, lived in the town 15 minutes from me. So I called, I just looked his number up in the book and called him on the phone and he answered. And I said, hey, Reed, can I, this is, you know, Daryl Peterson, can I come and talk to you? And he said, yeah. And uh, I kind of told him what I was thinking about. I said, yeah, come on down. So we sat on his front porch on Main Street in this town of Provo, Utah, and just sat there and shot the crap. And he, he just basically told me, you got to go to LA. And so I went to LA and uh, on one monumental day in LA, it was a Saturday and uh, it was a, it was a boxing match. And I had a security job for at the boxing match. And there's a big story leading up to that. It was really quite funny, but I won't for you with all those details they're out there so if somebody really wants them but any, anyway so i um, got a job in security and on this particular saturday there was a fight in the palladium with tate tillman and gonzalez and i believe tate um was making his debut as a professional fighter after the olympics in 84 and uh so i was a security guard there and on that day the first thing that happened to me is i was i was they they started me off at the back door at security for the back door. And I was standing looking out the door and all of a sudden somebody ran right into my chest and I looked down and it's Farrah Fawcett. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, it was awesome. And she just looked at it. It's so funny. Cause she had just, she wasn't watching where she was going and she just turned her head. And when she turned her head, she just ran right into my chest. <laughs> and so she looked up at me. So I'll never forget. She goes, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I said, Hey, what guy could be, upset with Farrah Fawcett. Yeah, really, right? yeah. And he had, she, had, she had Ryan uh, O'Neill with her as well. And then they right after that, they grabbed me and they moved me to ringside. And uh, there was a cameraman backing up towards me and nobody was behind it. And I had worked as a cameraman on several occasions. So I just reached out and put my hand on his back to help him back up. And he knew exactly what I was doing. And after he got done with the shot, he turned and looked at me. And I'll be damned if this guy hadn't just been at Iowa State working for the NCAA, um, filming uh, the guys before the national tournament for ABC. So I knew this guy. Yep. And he goes, do you need a job? And I said, yes. And he handed me a card. He gave me a job. And about a half hour later, the owner of the security company I was working for come up to me and he said, I know you, you don't know me, but I know you. And he goes, and I said, wow. He goes, my name's Dave Knudsen. 
And when you hear a name like Knudsen in Utah, Utah is full of um, Scandinavian, Scandahuvians. And uh, I'm Swedish and Norwegian and Knudsen was, it was spelled with an S-E-N. So he was uh, Norwegian. He goes, you ever thought about, <laughs> I, I never met this guy before in my life. And he says to me, you ever thought about being a professional wrestler? And I said, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he goes, you want to meet? a guy that can get you into the business. <laughs> and I said, okay. And he takes me over and introduces me, this guy sitting in the VIP section and it's Red Bastine. Wow. And uh, Red, if you don't know who he was, he was, um, he was a worker's worker. You know, he was the guy that all the boys tented, era, uh, not tent, uh, curtain. You know, they would always stand and watch him at the curtain because Red had the attitude, and he taught me this. He said, I always had the attitude that I was going to be the best match on the card, you know. And anyway, he took me under his wing. Uh, I don't know if you know this about Red. Red trained the in the, in the school before the one I went to. The, he trained Sting, Ultimate Warrior, um, Angel of Death, uh, and a couple other really famous wrestlers went through uh, Red's camp, the camp before I went through. When I went through, nobody else was there. He, had, he didn't have any other takers yet. And so I was the only guy that was there. And then a couple of other guys kind of came on um, later on down the road. But Red taught me. And, and in the middle of this teaching one day, he said, would you be abject to going out of country? And I said, well, no, not at all. He said, well, I've got a line on Australia and I've got a line on Japan. I said, oh, my God, how crazy would that be? And he came to me a week later and he said, the lady's name was uh, Chika Kujaroko and she was New Japan's American agent. And she came to the, the training place. It was uh, <laughs> the ring was set up in a handball court at a um, <clears throat> at a fitness center. The handball courts weren't getting rented. So Red rented this handball court to put the ring up in. And Chica came there and watched me wrestle. And he called me the next day and he said, the Japanese want you. So it was a very difficult time for me. My wife was pregnant at the time with my only daughter. And I had to leave. I had to. I had to go to Japan uh, a month before she gave birth. And it's the only child I wasn't there for when she was born, and and it was my only daughter. So that was tough. But it, I felt we both felt like at the time it was a sacrifice worth making. And uh, so then the rest is history. I, I met Chris in uh, L.A. at a restaurant. We went back to the same hotel and we stayed there the night, got up the next day and left for Japan. And from that moment on, Chris and I were together until I had to leave uh, at Christmas time to have a surgery done. <clears throat> and then I came back. And uh, like I said, I ended up being there total probably a year, year and a half in Japan. But living in the dojo was... Um, it was it was amazing. What did you think about Benoit the person and Benoit the wrestler? You know, it's talking about Chris in a good light. 
can sometimes be like trying to put Hitler over. You know, it's a little difficult yeah. because the guy killed his wife and child. Yep. Um, I never saw that in Chris. And I, to be honest with you, after knowing what I know, what he went through now, um, I actually feel really, really, really even more sorrowful for him. But most of all, I feel sorrowful for his parents. But I have nothing but absolutely the greatest respect for Chris Benoit. He never did anything but be a good friend to me. And he was so fucking funny. I had an apartment in Atlanta and he was coming in doing shots between going back to Japan and going to Germany. And so I just gave him a key and I said, you can just come and stay whenever you want to. And so instead of leaving me a message um, <laughs> on the phone, he'd fucking call and play like uh, uh, Highway to Hell, <laughs> you know, or he'd play yeah. Cinderella Gasoline. And these were all the songs we'd listen to in Japan. So he didn't have to say anything. I know who it was, you know? So it was really, Chris and I, we, you know, I'll tell you a quick story about the dojo. Um, the Japanese left us in the dojo for two weeks by ourselves one time. And they, they told us like the night before they said, Okay, we're going to Saipan and you guys aren't going. And the reason you're not going is because you didn't pay for the vacation. We took the money out of the Japanese young boys checks years ago and blah, 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 whatever. They just didn't want us to go. Whatever the reason, I don't know. But they didn't take us because if they wanted us to go someplace, they'd take us. Right. Um, but they didn't take us on this trip. So Chris and I were left in the dojo alone. And one night, I, I'm that, that night, I'm hearing noise come from the dojo. And I'm thinking, the fuck's out there at, you know, 1130 taking bumps in the ring, right? So I go out there and uh, here's Funaki and Sato. And uh, just, just to give you a quick rundown of the people I was in the dojo with. Hashimoto, Chono, Fu, Funaki, um, Nago Nogami. Uh, Iska, uh, and the list goes on. There's probably another five or six guys. So it was, it was really the cream year from the New Japan. That 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 group of guys. Oh, and uh, Jeshin Liger was um, the dojo boss when I when we first got there. Um, but uh, anyway, I go out in the ring. Here's Funaki and Sano, and they are beating the shit out of this young Japanese boy. And he's not very big. He's much smaller than both of them. And they're beating the fuck out of him. And um, they're trying to hurt him. It's pretty obvious. They're trying to they're trying to put this kid out. And part of the reason was is I watched and they were they would make him do things till he was exhausted. And then they would put him in a situation where he could really get hurt doing a, a really crazy bump. And then they just started deliberately fucking trying to hurt him. So I ran upstairs and I grabbed Chris and I said, Chris. I know it's Japan, and I know they have a way, but I'm not going to let these motherfuckers break this poor kid's legs. I'm not. So I'm going to go down and shut them down. If I have to fight both fucking Funaki and Sano, I will. I knew that wasn't going to happen because they were scared shitless of me. They knew I was just fucking off enough that they, they didn't want to fuck with that. So I'm way bigger uh, than them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they knew I was a shooter too. So, and I'd been learning. I, I was taught, not only was I a, a 
a shooter, an amateur shooter, but then I was taught submission wrestling by Fujiwara and uh, he's the king. And uh, so add my wrestling experience with my shooting experience, with my hooking experience. And most people were pretty fucking scared of me on top of the fact I was 350 pounds and pretty in pretty damn good shape at the time. Anyway, so I said, Chris, you want to come down? And he goes, yeah, I'll come down. So he goes, he comes down and I walk up to the ring and they have got fucking this kid's leg on a turnbuckle and they're standing in the corner running across the ring in the corner and they're jumping on his fucking ankle trying to break it. And I fucking looked at Funaki and I said, you're done. Stop. Don't do another thing. Just leave the kid alone. They looked at me and go, we don't understand English. So I said, bullshit. You don't understand English. Quit fucking trying to hurt this kid. And um, they, they got down. I thought they were going to, you know, uh, and they looked at me and they go, Pita, you no understand uh, Japanese tradition. I said, it ain't fucking Japanese tradition to fucking try and hurt somebody that's trying to make their way in the world. And if it is, it's fucking stupid. That's just what I said. I, and and I, it was one of those moments where it was truly, I guess, an American moment in the sense that I just, he was an underdog. And these two fuckers knew everything were trying to hurt him. So they left. And we got to know this guy. His name was Asai. And we had so much fucking fun with this kid. And every night, uh, the, one of the office guys, a guy named Yamamoto, uh, would come to the dojo and he would train him. And when the Japanese got back from Saipan, Asai left. And uh, we, I never saw him again until... Two months ago, <laughs> when I came out of retirement and went to this autograph signing session. Is um, it the Asai? Is it Ultimo Dragon? It is Ultimo Dragon. Wow. Okay. And I saw him and we just stood and hugged and cried for about 10 minutes. <laughs> it was, he, he didn't embarrass him because he was holding on to me as tight as I was holding on to him. And I said, oh, my God, Asai. I cannot believe it. I didn't even know who he was. I I knew I knew he got over in um, Mexico. He went to Mexico and shredded because he could fucking walk on the ropes without somebody holding on to him. Right. You know he was a, he's amazing when he was in his prime. The 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 shit they did to him in the dojo that night took a lot out of him though. I'll bet you would have been able to wrestle for another five or ten years if they wouldn't have destroyed his ankles. They they did a pretty handy job of destroying his ankles that night. Um, and when I saw Asai, he, he and I fast became, you know, friends again. And uh, I'm sure I'm going to end up back in Japan doing some stuff. I'm hoping that maybe I can talk them into as things continue to grow with the music side, that I can go back. And like I was watching one of their broadcasts, I'd love to be an announcer for them, an English announcer. And if I studied Japanese really hard, like, you know, for a couple of months, if I went to a, like a professional ling linguistic school for Japanese, within probably two or three months, I could be fluent because I still remember most of what I remember. I mean, because I was there long enough to know I could get anywhere. I could do anything in Japan I wanted to. Um, and I, I couldn't speak fluently, but enough to know if they spoke slowly, I could get by. So 
Um, that's just a, one of those dojo stories that uh, it, not that many people know about because it just happened. But it was it was an amazing moment. I got to tell you, the CSI again. And he wrote to me and he said, he goes, you saved my life. I'm not sure I want that kind of fucking pressure aside, but bottom line was he, it was amazing. You know, I'm getting goosebumps just telling you the story again. And it's, I relive it all the time because it was magical. And to be honest with you, until I realized it was him, I'd completely forgot the story. I'd never told anybody that story before. Wow. Now, not one person had I ever told that story to. So I haven't told that story very many times already. So this you're probably only the third person I've told that story to. So, That's but it was, isn't it amazing? It's just one of those moments in time where you just go, "Holy shit! What a small!" I mean, I my first first time back in the wrestling business, and I see a sigh, and I gotta tell you. Um, the universe has been pushing me towards this. I got to tell you, I mean, I'm a, I'm a karmetic guy. I believe in karma a lot because I've had some of the fucking shitty instant karma get me for the dumbass shit I've done in my life. But I've also had some amazing good things happen. And the stuff that's happening to me right now is so good. I, I can't complain. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. The, the universe just keeps handing me these incredible gifts, just like, you know, being, I mean, I got to be honest with you. I wasn't really, eh, that's not true. I, I have been planning to come back at some point in time. Kevin, the guy that got a hold of me, just happened to get a hold of me at the right time. And that's why I'm back because I have a, I have a three or four stories that I'd like to believe. Maybe it's too grandiose to say this. Let's just put it this way. The stories I'm about to tell are going to have an impact on wrestling. Interesting. So yeah. Ultimo Dragon, you save his life. What what kind of stories, you know, what other other awesome stories do you have? You know, you save Ultimo Dragon's career, man. That's pretty damn good. He was one of the all-time greats. Yeah, right. And what a fucking and what a first class human being he is. You know, he's just one of the most amazing guys I've ever met in my life. We had so much fun with him in the dojo. And we went shopping, we went to uh uh, Harajuku and Shibuya, which are the big, like, the, like, big shopping areas in Tokyo for, for Gaijings, you know, for, so we'd, we'd go there and God, we just had, it was just a blast. This place called Harajuku every Sunday, they, everybody would dress up like Elvis, you know, <laughs> but I would have to say probably the most profound story I'm about to release is, um, it's kind of a twofold thing. Um, first of all, in 1995, on what ended up posthumously being my last tour in the wrestling world, not really. I went back to Auto Bonds for a month and then I just decided I had enough and left. Um, and I would apologize to Auto 10 times over right now. I just, I was done. I shouldn't have gone. I went because Brian went, but I'll explain that. So while I was in uh, the WCW, I, because I, I did play the guitar, um, the gods of music started throwing some sound, songs onto me. And I start, I always, what I always wanted to do 
from the time I was eight years old, I wanted to create a band. Um, at the time, I didn't realize it was going to be all wrestlers. But um, when I got to Atlanta and things started going well, I don't know why. I just realized it was time for me to put my ideas on paper. And so I did. I wrote three songs. And then I started to put my band together. And um, I'd already been jamming with somebody else in the WCW. I'll tell you who it is in just a minute, but I want to tell you right now. And he and I would go to uh, his dad's uh, wrestling school. And uh, he had a, he had, that's where he had his guitars and stuff. And every time we had days off, we would go to the, to this, to the school and just jam loud as fuck, you know, just play as loud as we could play <laughs> and had a great time. And then it really, it came to me and said, okay, I got it. I got a rhythm guitar player there. One day I heard Brian or Brad Armstrong singing in the shower at one of the events. I know that sounds crazy, but I, he was singing in the shower and when he come out, I said, dude, would you be interested in, leading a band if i wrote some songs you liked would you sing them and he said yes so there's that i had another friend that was a wrestler that i brought in was a bass player and my drummer who's my friend since i was in fourth grade had was an amateur wrestler i'd spent time with in idaho as well and then on top of that um i taught him how to be a professional wrestler his, his gimmick was kid ego and he was fucking great at it i'll tell you um and I cashed in all my round trip tickets from my contract um, with the WCW and they gave me the money and I bought a recording studio. The first digital recording studio that was manufactured in the United States, it was called an ADAT system and it was called a, an ADAT dream studio. And I built uh, a studio and didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing, but called all the people I could think of to help me and they all give me advice. And I built a studio in Jonesboro, uh, Georgia, which is south of Atlanta, about 20 minutes. And we built a studio there and we recorded 14 songs. And those songs were part of what I was gonna do in the WWF. And it all fell apart for a number of reasons. When I tell you who my lead singer ended up being because we signed a contract with our, with our manager, went to rehearsal the next day and Brad didn't show up. We just signed a contract, we're ready to go. I'm ready to start recording and practicing these songs. And the first day of practice, Brad doesn't show up. He left him messages. We're all sitting in the, in the studio waiting for him. So we just practiced and called him again, didn't show up didn't answer his phone finally after about three or four days i just gave up i go i don't i don't know what the fuck we're gonna do and so we went to an outback one night and uh midian or tex schlesinger uh was there with this kid i'd never met before and his name was brian armstrong and so we sat there and we played and or ate and laughed and had a great time and uh Brian said to me, he said, uh, Max, there's a reason why I'm here. And I said, what's that? He goes, um, I know 
I know Brad let you down. And I said, and he said, but I can sing. And he's an ego fucker. So he said, quite honestly, I think I can sing better than Brad. Right. Yeah. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. So we went home. And at the time, I learned how to play plush. It was popular at the time. Uh, Stone Temple Pilot song. Fucking love it. And then there's a song by uh, this other band, Brian New. And uh, then I had my own song, one of my own songs written. But we started off and I played plush. And Brian just fucking knocked it out of the ballpark, brother. I mean, I'm not kidding you. It was it was ridiculous how good he was. I mean, I, I was like this. When we got done, I said, Brian, I said, I want you on board. I, in fact, I just told him this story the other day, and he, he doesn't even remember it. And I said, I said, I want you on board, but if you think I'm fucking fighting the Armstrong family, you're out of your fucking head. So the only way this is going to happen is if your brother Brad calls me on the phone and says, hey, Max, I'm turning the reins over to my brother Brian. And the next day, Brad called me and said, Max, I just, I can't do it. And I'm glad you found my brother. Brian's a hell of a front man. He'll be great. And I said, Brad, I'm so sad because you're a talented, talented singer, man. And uh, he said, you'll do fine with Brian. I said, okay, brother, I wish you the best. And he said, I, you as well. And Thank God. I don't know. I, you know, I have to say, I, I'm not going to, I I at least have to give myself credit this way is one of the first things I did was bought a, a good video camera at the time, the, the highest consumer level video camera you could buy. Cause to go to the next level, they're heavier. They're not easy to move around, but this camera claimed to be broadcast quality. So as we started building the studio and as we started practicing the songs and all the equipment came and everything, I started recording it all. And I just found, I forgot that I did it. And I have a movie of us making the album, building the studio and making the album. And then I, that year is when I went to the WWF and I took my camera with me on the last tour in the WWF. So I've got these two movies now and I have a record and I got to tell you, I'm excited for wrestling fans first and foremost to hear this because the guy at the helm um, is legit. One of the greatest singers of all. I've, and I've told him this over and over again. I'll tell it, you know, I'm not afraid to tell it to his face. I can't wait for us to get together and do some stuff again. And hopefully maybe if there's enough interest, maybe we can do some other things, but Brian, as you know, ended up being Road Dog. And yeah. uh, the whole angle with him and Jeff Jarrett was supposed to be manifested at WrestleMania 10 or 11, whichever one. I don't remember which one it was. Um, and what was going to happen is in the interim of this, a guy named Steve Miller, um, we, we put his tape in his mailbox which one of my friends uh, lived in Sun Valley and he had a house in Sun Valley. So we put my, we put our tape in the box and a couple of weeks later, Steve called he was on his tour bus. And he says, I'm coming to Georgia. You guys want to come to my show? We talked all kinds of stuff. In fact, I have a letter um, that eventually I'm going to put online for people to see. So they know I'm telling the truth because 
I've been accused of being a liar a lot and nothing pisses me off worse. Why would I lie about something like this? But anyway, so Steve Miller was supposed to come on board. He was going to be my, he was going to be my manager, but he was going to be my music attorney. And we were supposed to meet at WrestleMania and we were going to save Brian from the evil Jeff Jarrett who had had Brian sing Be My Baby Tonight. And then promptly stole it from him, and we were going to confront him. J.J. Dillon called me one morning in a hotel, and he said, okay, give me Steve's number. We're ready to call him so we can get this WrestleMania thing set up. And I said, okay. And Steve had said yes the whole time. I have to say, Steve had said yes the whole time. I'm also going to post an interview that he did with Mick Foley on Jimmy Kimmel to substantiate what I'm telling you. And... Fucking J.J. Dillon called me back five minutes later, and he goes, what the fuck's going on, Max? I said, what do you mean? He goes, I just talked to Steve Miller. He said no. Hmm. What? What do you mean he said no? He said no, he's not going to do it. I called Steve, and I said, Steve, you're not going to do this? Do you know what I've done to get us to this point? Dude, this is WrestleMania. Yeah, I talked to my record company execs, and they said – you know, it's probably not a good thing for you to get involved in the wrestling business. I looked at him and I said, are you out of your mind, dude? Do you realize the new audiences you're going to introduce your music to with the wrestling fans? I said, if you don't think wrestling fans will be as fucking devoted to you as anybody, you're out of your mind. And especially if you baby face with me and we go out there and play and we do some fucking great shit, dude, you're going to be an infamous fucking guy in the wrestling business. Because he wanted to be, he wanted to do this. He called me and asked me if he could be my manager, which is why I went to New York with it. I mean, that's the whole reason I said to Vince, look, this guy wants to come and, you know, be my manager. And because uh, his uncle had wrestled. He was from Texas. Steve's from Texas. His uncle had wrestled. He always loved the business and he wanted to be a part of it. And his record company talked him out of it. And I, I, to this day, I would tell Steve this to his face. I actually did tell him to his face. You made a huge mistake here because you would have put more money in your pocket, not less, from being a part of wrestling. And fans are fans. And if they love you and buy your shit, who gives a fuck, right? Um, but we parted ways. And the next day, JJ called me. In fact, I don't even think it was the next day. I think it was an hour later. JJ called me back and said, after the Europe tour, we're going to let you go, Max. And they they pretty much fired me on the spot. Well, all because it went downhill because of Steve Miller. Yep. Because they they had this fucking huge program wrapped around it. You know, they were gonna we were going to fucking WrestleMania with it, and I was gonna fucking expose Jeff and Brian, and the whole thing was gonna take off, and then. Brian and I were going to sit down and do some fucking songs and people would go, well, you know, that, that the whole thing was to bring living insanity. That's the name of my band on board um, with the WWF. And then in the end, like I said, I just wanted to be like the fucking Paul Schaefer of the wrestling business. I just wanted to, you know, be the guy, but I had heat with fucking everybody in the WWF. Jim Johnston, the guy that did all the music for WWF, he was such a fucking cocksucker. He didn't even put my own guitar playing on a promo I did for Man Mountain Rock. He put his shit-ass tone in his stupid fucking song he wrote on, and then I had to use it as my as my track. 
And you know, I'll tell you, I, I want to say this to anybody who's listening out there. The only mistake I made in the WWF was not doing exactly what Stone Cold did and saying, fuck you, I ain't going to do that stupid gimmick. I'm going to be who I am, Vince. And Vince said, okay. And looking back in retrospect, I wished I would have done the same because I did a bunch of gigs that I shouldn't have done. And I knew I shouldn't have done them. Um, they put me in Madison Square Garden with a completely inadequate system one night. And I fucking got booed the first time I ever got booed because I couldn't hear to play. It was fucking, fucking Madison Square Garden, man. How do you fucking play at Madison Square Garden through the fucking PA that's in the ceiling? You know, you don't do that. It's rock. You don't fucking play with the PA. You have to have fucking, I needed a monitor and I need to be able to hear myself. And it just, it just, it fell apart and I got booed and it crushed me. And I've made a vow. I'm going to go back to Madison Square Garden one of these days and, and redeem myself. And, but um, yeah. So as you can imagine, when I first left the wrestling business, um, let's just put it this way. I was fucked up. I was really fucked up. I was, uh, if I, but so here now, the opposite side of that. Had I not left at that moment in time, I would have died. Like I was saying earlier, I would, it would have just, I would just be another statistic of another fucking dead wrestler and nobody would ever have gotten to hear this incredible album. I have to tell you, I'm proud of it. Um, and I think wrestling fans are going to dig the fact that for the first time, um, truly a wrestler's voice in a song is going to be heard. And there's, there's four or five songs on this album that are directly pointed at wrestling and almost all of them, <coughs> excuse me, at some level or another have something to do with the business. Um, but uh, it just all fell apart. And I went home and laid in bed for three months. Cause I'll tell you the hardest addiction to beat makes Percocets and pain pills and anything else you're addicted to physically look like a cake in the walk or like a cakewalk until you try and quit the wrestling business and you're not hearing a pop every night, you know, when you go out there and you wrestle and you get that immediate gratification of, you know, um, but by then too, I, I was, I was really, 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 you know, I, I, I just, I'd worked out my whole life. I'd worked out through college. I, 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 you know, I was just, I was hurt. I was depressed and, uh, I, it was time. My kids needed me. My family needed me. My, I ended up taking care of my parents until they died. They passed away, you know, with me in my home. And so for that, I'm incredibly thankful. In fact, I, the wrestling business blessed me by kicking me to the curb because had they not, I would have stayed in and I'd be dead. And as a result, I was with my parents when they died and I was with my kids when they walked across the stage of the grade school in their last Christmas play and was there for all of them when they graduated from high school. And I was there for my second son when he won a state wrestling championship. And it was just, uh, that part of it was really, really good. And so for that, I'm incredibly thankful that the wrestling business kicked me to the curb, but 
there's still a great story that's left untold. And it's not just a fucking little story. It's a big story. And the two movies in the album, um, I think wrestling fans are, I hope I could be wrong. Maybe nobody will be interested in it. I'll be shocked. Um, especially when you hear some of the, the, the greater songs on the album, I think they're all great. Of course, I'm a musician. I wouldn't, you couldn't do that if you weren't, but, um, there's three or four songs on this album that uh, I think wrestling fans are really, really going to dig. And I think they're really going to dig here in the story um, of how it all went down. And I've been in communication with Brian and uh, we're going to do something. I'm going to release this album. Um, I, I don't, I can't give it a date, but my goal is this year. And when I release the album, I want to release the movie that goes with it because it's, it, I got to tell you, it's pretty fucking funny. Brian James is one of the funniest human beings on the planet. And he's just incredible. And I've told him this over and over again, Brian, however great you were as a wrestler, and he was a great fucking wrestler. That guy knows the business. He's born in it. You know, his dad was a bullet for fuck's sake. You know, he knows the business like the back of his hand. And so he didn't even have to work hard to be a good wrestler. He just fucking knew what to do, you know? And I told him over and over again, Brian, I'm going to tell you right now how great you are as a wrestler pales by comparison to how great you are as a lead singer. He is fucking phenomenal. The guy can fucking sing his ass off. And more than that, he is one hell of a front man. So I'm hoping that maybe it'll spark enough interest that maybe we can reunite long enough to do some new stuff. I think it's going to happen, but none of it will be, you know, I'll come back on after we release this stuff and, you know, we'll, we'll talk more in depth about it and then you'll have yeah. a chance to see the media and stuff. So, you know, I, like I said, I'm laying down the groundwork. I'm, I'm going to be around now until I die. So um, besides the fact I have a, a movie script that I've actually written um, about the wrestling business. I have uh, a futuristic wrestling movie. I know that sounds pretty crazy, but it's about cyborg wrestlers and it's a little different take on it's just wrestling used as uh, a different kind of medium. And uh, I have two or three other films that, that I want to do first one and foremost would be the one about the wrestling business because I'm, I would be excited about that. So my goal is to finally, you know, I will have accomplished uh, in my life when you sit down in a theater or you're sitting watching your television and it says a film by Max Payne. So then I will, uh, I will have fulfilled most of the things I've wanted to do in my life. Uh, taking care of my bucket list, if you will. And uh, so now it's just a matter of, of getting it all done. That documentary, is it a lot of behind the scenes stuff like at actual WWF shows or it's, is this? It's all, it's all behind the scenes. There's no wrestling in it. It's just like, so let me tell you where the idea came from. Okay. And this pissed off, this pissed the WW guys off too, because they couldn't pull, they couldn't pull it off. Shawn Michaels tried to do what I did. And they couldn't pull it off. You know, I asked Vince if I could take my fucking camera with him, with me. And he said yes. And the reason you know he said yes 
is because I'm fucking interviewing Tony Gurria. You don't fucking interview Tony Gurria backstage at a WWF show if fucking Vince didn't say yes. So I got this camera with me on the bus, in the dressing rooms, and I captured some shit that's absolutely some of the most amazing things. Wrestling fans have, speaking of Sid, there's a scene with Sid and Bam Bam planning their match. And I got to tell you, that's the most exciting thing. I'm so excited for people to, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but that part of the business needs to be broken down. I really believe that because it's fucking ridiculous. You know, it, it's just one of those things that nobody's ever actually really heard that kind of conversation in a dressing room. That's the part that's so amazing about this. On the bus, in the hotel lobbies, the only thing that's in the ring, and the reason I took my camera with me is because I wanted, and you know what's amazing about this movie, is in the middle of the fucking tour, um, Owen Hart and uh, Louis Piccoli were fucking around, and uh, Owen accidentally sprayed Louis in the eye with some cologne. And Louis was allergic to one of the ingredients in the cologne. And his eye, it's even in the movie, his eye swells shut. So how does the WWF deal with somebody, something like that when somebody gets hurt and they don't have a match? What do they do? They have a battle royal, right? And everybody goes, oh, battle royal, because you don't get to get dressed. You don't get to go home early because it's always going to be the main event. So everybody fucking hates that when somebody doesn't show up or gets hurt because we all end up having to do a battle royal. So I went I went to Tony Gurria and I said, Tony, part of the reason, this is what's amazing about this movie because exactly what I wanted to prove that I was capable of, I proved. And it's on the movie. And I said to Tony Gurria, I said, Tony, do you know I'm probably the only wrestler in the wrestling business, other than Graham Chapman from Monty Python, that could give you, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Graham Chapman wrestle himself. If you haven't, it's truly some of the fucking funniest shit you've ever seen in your life. If you like Monty Python, type in Graham Chapman wrestles himself, and you, you'll laugh till you cry. It's so fucking funny. He does a, he does a standing cradle and pins himself and all kinds of shit. It's fucking funny shit. But uh, I said to Tony, I said, Tony, I said, you do realize I'm the only guy in the wrestling business that can give you 15 minutes without an opponent. He went, what do you mean, Max? I said, I'll go out there and play the guitar for 15, 20 minutes, whatever you, how much time you need. I'll give you that. He goes, are you fucking kidding me? I said, no. He goes, let me talk to the man. Okay. Comes back. Okay, you're on. So for the next five or six shows, uh, for the opening match, I just went out and played. Just fucking shit that I knew how to play and, you know, smoke on the water, enter Sandman, Green Day, and then ended the sh ended always ended with two of my own songs. I'd get the crowd warmed up, get them chanting Zoo Gobbin, and then they would, then I'd play my songs, and it just... It just went fucking spectacularly. And I wanted that to happen so Vince could fucking see for his own eyes that what I was doing could make him money. You know what I mean? 
I wanted the fucking fame and the money too, but I wanted him to really understand because after I got booed in Madison Square Garden, as you know, Vince always watches to see what happens. Fuck, he was right in his booth. When I got booed, you know, he started, he seriously started to doubt, you know, what he was doing with me. And then, so I wanted to prove to him and, and I'd already been in Europe and that's where I invented my gimmick uh, and not invented it, but, but introduced it and polished it, you know, so that when I came to the States, I was already ready to go. So the European fans are fucking unbelievable. And, um, I learned how to play the German national anthem as well. And uh, as you can imagine, fucking the Germans went crazy. And on my last night, the we were in uh, Zurich, Switzerland. And uh, I walk out of the ring. The crowd's still fucking chanting Zugaben. I don't know if you've ever been to Germany or Europe when they... When something happens in yeah, Germany, yeah, yeah. okay. When something happens in Germany that people love, they start chanting Zugaben, Zugaben, and um, I, they're still chanting that. And I walk back to the back, and here stands Kevin Nash, and he says, "Yeah, that's not really working, Max." I'm like, "What?" Am I not hearing that or what's yeah, going what on? Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah what do you mean? What do you mean? Yeah, it's just, yeah, the look's not good. It's just not going very, I got, fuck Kevin, I guess I'm deaf because everything I'm hearing, they're going nuts. And I knew right then that the click had won. I knew I was done. Now, that's, that was when Kevin said that to me on the last night and the crowd's still funking, fucking chanting for me. You know, it's pretty tough to go, really? Yeah, but I, I, I took that as the sign it was. And uh, that was it. That was, uh, I went to Germany again for, like I said, for a month. And then Brian and I went together when he quit the WWF the first time. Um, and uh, Brian left because he was going back to New York. And I, I, I begged Brian while we were in Germany. I was trying to get him to go to to go play on the streets of Vienna, Austria with me because Vienna is this huge music town. As you know, Beethoven's from there. I mean, all of the great classical musicians were centered in Vienna, Austria. So the Viennese love, the Wieners love uh, street musicians. And I'll bet we could have made four or $500 a day playing on the street, you know, and I couldn't get Brian to go with me. And when Brian refused to be a part of what I was trying to do, I just... I knew that at that moment in time, it was probably, it was probably all over, but the crying. So that's when I quit. And here I am today, 20, what, that would have been 96. So 27 years ago. So the click really did have all that power. You know, they always backstage stories about the click and, you know, how they were with Vince. So they really did have that kind of power backstage. Well, you know, this is one of those moments in time. I guess you'll have to decide for yourself when you watch the movie. I mean, the great thing is I may just be fucking full of shit, right? I may not have a movie. I may be full of shit. There may be none of this out there. Or I could be telling the truth and the movie's going to definitely um, is going to prove me honest. Let's just say that. 
you know, and uh, the whole time backstage, I'm talking about the fucking click and about the bullshit I'm dealing with them. And so many of them, it's, it, it's kind of, it's a little heartbreaking. Wrestlers have this, there's, they have a sense of loyalty to none. You know, if the dollars in, in the way, I, I don't think it's any different in any business. So is it if the dollar gets in the way? Nobody's fucking, nobody's loyal to anything, but the fucking dollar. Um, and a lot of the guys I really loved and thought a lot of just turned their backs on me. And I probably deserved it in some ways, but to not forgive me and not, you know, I, to me personally, this is the part I've never understood. The WWF is notorious for hiring guys that, you know, were middle of the card, lesser card guys to work backstage because they have that kind of savvy. And that's all I ever wanted. And the WWF, in my opinion, missed out on 30 years of a fucking really on a, of a guy who had ideas that weren't just for me. You know, I, I could have easily um, helped anybody else out Vince wanted me to. But for whatever reason, they, and I'll, I'll just say they, they didn't like me. They didn't like my personality. I don't know. I can't tell you honestly. You probably have to ask them that question, but I just know what happened to me. And uh, it was a tough, it was, it was tough on me. It was really tough. I, I got to be honest with you. I, I heard Brian talking about this the other day about thinking about putting a gun in his mouth, but I didn't have the fucking courage to do that. Besides that, in the end, I, I really wanted to prove them all wrong. And if it takes 30 years to prove them all wrong, then so be it. We're talking about, you know, like the release and, and like you leaving. How did you actually get into the WBF and, and where does Man Mountain Rock come from? Sounds like such like a Vince name, like Man Mountain Rock. Yeah, it was. And um, well, the WCW let me go after I hurt Knobs. They finished me up because Knobs called Hogan crying like a fucking baby that he is and saying Max hurt me because he's clumsy and lazy which is so far from the truth, it's not funny. It happened to Brian Knobs because Brian Knobs made the decision not to trust me in the middle of a throw. And you don't fucking do that. So he can say whatever he wants. It was my stupidity. It wasn't my stupidity. If you watch the move, you'll see Brian tried to stop me from throwing him because he was trying to go straight over the top of me. I had his right arm trapped and I was going to do a side salto on him and throw him out of the fucking ring. So he'd land on the fucking ring and bounce out of the ropes. But he decided to go straight over to try and take a straight over bump. And in that night, uh, I told him in the ring or in the dressing room, I said, you know, you motherfuckers have hurt me every single match. And tonight I'm getting my shit because they were they were all together, including Mick and excluded me. They were all together fucking talking about the match. And I, you know, like I was irrelevant. And uh, I finally walked over and I said, you know, tonight I'm going to get my shit in. And either you're going to give it to me or I'm going to take it. That's the way it's going to go tonight. You're going to let me do what I want to do or you're going to fucking, you're going to, I'm going to take it from you. So Nobbs didn't trust me and he was going to try and stop me. Well, he didn't stop me. He just fucking killed himself from being a stupid you know, an idiot that fucking that didn't trust me. And the reason he didn't trust me and anybody that knows this and 
I'm not afraid of the nasty boys, boys even today because in Hogan, that whole fucking thing, what are they going to do? Fire me? I mean, I'm already fucking blackballed from the wrestling business because Knobs told everybody that I fucking heard him and all I got to do is watch it. And it's easy to blame it on me. But if you watch fucking what really happened and you know anything about wrestling, it was Knobs. But when I got in the wrestling business, um, they fired me and Rude came to my house. And Rude and I were really good friends, really good friends. Rude came to my house and um, he said to me, um, you got to get a hold of Vince. I said, I don't know. He goes, I'll call him for you. He called him right that second. And I talked to Vince right then. And Vince said, okay, I want you to come to New York. And I said, I'd like to bring Brian James with me. <coughs> and um, we'd like to come and perform for you so you can so you can see, so we flew to New York and uh, the next day we went to some little, this is during the era of the fucking Hogan fall. So they were doing little high school shots. Remember that era? Yeah, oh yeah. And uh, I went to this shot that's had a little curtain office and uh, uh, Robert Fuller had a a 1965 D35 Martin that I recorded the whole album with. He let me use it for the whole album. And he let me take it to uh, New York um, to play for Vince. So Brian and I went to New York, sat in front of Vince, and we played three songs. And when we stopped, Vince looked at us and he said, he looked at me really, and he said, okay, Max, where do we start? And I laid out the plan with the Steve Miller thing in place right then. And he said, I'm in. Let's do it. And that's how it started. They didn't want me to be Max Payne because it was too close to The Undertaker. And I'm like, to me, that was the biggest fucking mistake you could have made, in my opinion. Because imagine the fucking great fucking feuds Taker and I could have had. And then ended up being, you know, partners. And I play fucking, you know, he loves heavy metal, too. He's a fucking metalhead, you know. And I, I just think Taker and I could have fucking really had some great fucking matches, great matches. And um, Vince wouldn't let me be Max Payne. And I wish the only time in my life I didn't say no was right then. I wish I would have said, fuck you. I've been Max Payne since fucking before Taker was in the business. I started in Memphis before Taker did as Max Payne. So, and Taker came into Memphis and followed me as a master of pain. And I, I'm not, there's no, there's no anguish there. I'm just saying I was Max Payne from the beginning of my wrestling career in the United States. So to give that up was fucking hard. I'll tell you. And then to put on a tie, I'm not a tie dye guy. You know, I'm a fucking black guy. I wear black with white lettering and heavy metal shit, you know, that's who I yeah. am. I did this for my gimmick so that when I played, I was going to color this with um, fluorescent ink. So we put a black light up in front of me and it would glow while I played. So that was the whole reason I, you know, everything I did was in preparation for that moment. And dude, I was running wide fucking open as hard as I could run. So it was Brian and we just crashed. It just I, I kind of told you the whole reason it crashed and it just hit a wall and I left and went home. That's basically, that's basically what happened. 
it's funny though because it's like man mountain rock i like it it almost doesn't go together it almost sounds like like it's like when the japanese put words together like let's throw three words together you know what i mean it doesn't really go together well ultimo dragon's a classic example it makes no sense yet it does now that you know sai I mean, that's just the Japanese nature of things. And that's why I hated, you know, the fucking, you know, this came from the old timers, man, mountain, you know, they, they wanted to compare me to man, mountain, Dean and shit. I'm like, fuck mm. man, I'm not man, mountain, Dean. I'm fucking far more intellectual. This is, you know, that's the part I hated about it. If you read my introduction article into the WCW and the WCW magazine, the whole fucking thing was a shoot. Everything that Linda Rufa wrote about me in my introduction into the WCW, into the first article introducing me into the WCW, every fucking word of that is a shoot. When you think about like just the the premise of of Man Mountain Rock, it's just like okay, you got the WWF logo guitar, you got the tie dye. I know it it doesn't scream like tough guy. You, with your size and stuff, it's like very jokey. I mean, I guess that's more their sports entertainment esque way of going and about and things. And that, that's just not who I was. I mean, right. you know, at the time, and I certainly didn't want to be that. But you know, um, I worked with Anthony Hopkins one time, and the company that I worked for in this movie wanted me to cut my hair, and I almost didn't do it. And one of my friends said fuck, dude, you're going to be working with Anthony Hopkins. Your hair will grow back. Right. And so I cut it off and worked with Anthony Hopkins. And because they were pissed at me, them fuckers didn't put me in the movie. Fucking jackasses. Didn't even put me in the credits. It was a movie called The World's Fastest Indian. Um, You know, I, I just, I don't, I, I must just be a fucking heat seeker because every fucking thing I did at that time in my life, the very first gig when I went home to Utah to uh, leave the wrestling business and start a job, I signed up with a casting agency in Salt Lake City, which got me tons of work. That uh, got me the world's fastest Indian and three or four other movies I was in. And um, the first gig I did with them was voiceover talent for a movie, uh, for a video game called Road Trip. It was the third installment of the Twisted Metal uh, games. And following that, that following fall, out comes a game named Max Payne by the same company that I worked for. So I'll let you draw your own conclusions with that one. I handed him a dossier full of me and all my shit and they created a game named Max Payne. The owner of the company even called me and asked me if I wanted to sell it. I didn't know it was him then, but looking back, you know, in retrospect, it was, it was the guy from the company calling me to say, Hey, we want to buy your name. And when I said, no, they just said, Oh, fuck it. We'll just steal it. So. Wow. So you did sue them and it was settled out of court or what happened with that? Yeah, I was settled out of court and, uh, you know, I, I've signed an NDA, so I can't talk about it much, but I would like to think that in the near future, I have a feeling they're, they're going to have to make a decision because they put some verbiage in my contract that I could always be Max Payne, the wrestler, writer, actor, you know, I could still use my name to do that. I just couldn't like start a website called Max Payne. And, uh, I have a feeling once wrestling fans discover, I mean, if you are a wrestling fan, 
and you are a Max Payne fan, anybody that that hears this story surely realizes that Max Payne came out long after I did. And um, there's a lot more to that story, but you know, it's one of those, that's, that's part of the details of things like that will end up in my book. So really Max Payne, when did that actually start? Cause you mentioned Memphis in like the mid to late eighties. When yeah. does that actually like happen? I guess it would be somewhere around the mid eighties. 87. Yep. When I got home from Japan, I got home from Japan, couldn't find uh, every place I was trying to go to closed down. Um, I was trying to go to Montreal. They had a little territory in Montreal. It closed down. I thought about going to Portland and Portland just was dead. You know, Vincent effectively killed all the small territories by then. I ended up going to Memphis and I still have all my paycheck stubs from Memphis a week, 3,000 miles a week, I was making $200, you know, it was, it was a motherfucker to say the least to pay your dues in the business at that time. Cause there was no place to go. You know, you couldn't be married to a guy for any length of time because people were in and out so much because they couldn't fucking survive, you know? And uh, so I, I actually thought of the name in Japan and that's when I, that's when I pissed them off as I said, I want to be Max Payne. And I told the reporter that, and the fucking reporter went straight to the boss of New Japan Pro Wrestling, and he came and got me and yelled at me and said, Yo, you don't do nothing with the press until we tell you to do it. And I'm like, okay. I'm not fucking an 18-year-old dojo kid. Yeah, I was an adult with a college degree and my own way of thinking. And that's everybody else who went there, including Chris. You know, Chris did the Pegasus thing for them. Um, and I could have done that and probably should have, but I don't, like I said, once again, I, I'm not going to shoulda, coulda, woulda stuff. I just did what I did and we'll see if the wrestling, if wrestling fans think it worthy or not, you know, it's all I can do is put out what I did and we'll see what goes down from there. So how did you end up getting into WCW? Uh, obviously a few years later, but how did you get in? Rip Rogers. Rip Rogers knew uh, Bill Watts, knew the cowboy, called him, told him about me. Bill Watts was a huge mark for amateur wrestlers. And then he saw a video of my gimmick and he fucking loved it. And uh, the rest is history. I came home and went down there for an interview, met with Bill, and uh, I was back in two weeks. Did he say, like, be yourself, or did he have an idea of what the character should be? No, he – he. I already had the Max Payne character dialed in because I was playing the guitar. Because I actually started the Max Payne gimmick in Japan or in uh, Germany, um, and I did it as uh, – they didn't want Max Payne, but they let me change my name. They, they called me Buffalo, which I hated. Um, uh, but – they actually let me change my name to Heavy Metal Buffalo. And that I liked better, far better than just Buffalo. But they wouldn't let me do Max Payne. But I knew I was going to be Max Payne as soon as I came to the States. So as soon as I went to, I never even talked about anything other than Max Payne. Did they think you look like a Buffalo? Why are you Heavy Metal Buffalo? Well, the Buffalo part anyway. Who fucking knows? They, they thought that was cute or funny or some shit. Who knows? They decided because I, I was big 
as big like a buffalo and they'd already done all the other big animals like a bull and the bear and you know there was nothing else for me to be and they some smart fucker said hey how about a buffalo and they all went oh that's a good idea the WCW have their eye on CWA and Otto Vance because you and Benoit are there a lot of guys kind of end up coming from uh, Germany and and really Europe yeah I think I think Chris had a lot to do with that he was he was very good. Um, Chris got me my gig in, in CWA. Um, he, he was very good at, Otto was good at, at, at uh, using the guys that were connected to like the CWA. You know, he, he would, he would, uh, sorry, I'm just going to adjust my camera a little bit. He would um, pick the brains of all the guys that came in. That's why, you know, he loved Chris. So, when Chris told him about me, fuck, he called me and invited me over instantly. Who else was over there? Giant Haystacks probably was Finley over there and, yep, and a bunch Finley, of other guys. Taylor, Colonel, uh, Tony St. Clair, um, Mille Terno, he's a uh, Serbian wrestler who'd been there for years. Eddie Steinblock, they had a big uh, Austrian strongman contest winner they brought in. Uh, he was funny. God, he was funny. He was good too. And uh, they, they, but primarily uh, it was, oh, Joe Cruz went there for the first year I was there. Um, Larry Cameron, which Larry Cameron is a fucking shitty story. I'll tell you that. I don't know if you know who Larry Cameron is, but he died there. Um, and that's a horrible story. Big star in Canada. Yeah, I'll tell you what, he was that story is is heartbreaking. Absolutely fucking heartbreaking. He didn't need to die, and the business caused it. It's he really died because of the business, because nobody believed he was dying. So wow. Yeah, so I, I had a great time in Europe and ripped. Rogers just fucking came. Oh, Salvador Belomo, he would come and do big shots. He was funnier than hell. God, he's a great guy. Um, and then and then Mick McMichaels was the ref, and Monsieur Didi Gap, the referee from France. Um, great time, great, 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 great time. Going back to WCW, what did you think about Bill Watts? You know, he left almost immediately, and I was very insecure. Um, I loved Bill. I got to be honest with you, looking back in retrospect, I, I once again, you know, promoters are so designed to think about angles. I mean, their whole job is to figure out how to make money, right? Yep. So here you got a guy who goes out and plays the national anthem. And while he's playing, while I'm playing, you can actually see people going, oh, my God, he's really playing and put their hands over their heart and stop booing me, right? If I would have been a promoter watching that, I would have said, I don't care how much that fucking guitar is worth. I want you to, I would have grabbed Vader and I would have said, you go out there and close on that motherfucker before he finishes. Because imagine the heat that would have garnered in the middle of playing the national anthem, somebody fucking clotheslined me. Big time. And then, and then fucking three or four of the guys come out and say, we don't need none of this shit. Imagine how much, fucking money that would have made and then i had a gang that surrounded me so i could play the national anthem. you know i mean it could have just been this fucking 
huge angle. And instead, they send me out there with fucking Dustin Rhodes and the fucking crowd sat on their hands. It was the hardest match I ever wrestled in because it was a babyface match. The crowd wasn't going to boo me. And instead of fucking Bill going, oh, my God, this is huge, everybody just ignored it. I, I had to fight tooth and nail to even get to play uh, in the WCW. Um, after the initial me coming there and the initial kickoff, it just it fell apart after Bill left because then uh, uh, Eric Bischoff took over and, and the rest, as they say, is history. I like Super Bowl three. I like that match. I know the crowd was a little quiet, but you and Dustin were working hard. I mean, the show overall is is great. You got the Heavenly Bodies and the Rock and Roll Express. Benoit is on there against Scorpio. The main event, Sting Vader, is awesome. So overall, I like the card. Even your match with Dustin, I really like the match. Well, thank you. That's that's fine. It's that that's a nice thing to say. It it, it was just really frustrating for me because I I wasn't fucking ready for that. I I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, I didn't go out there thinking, well, they're going to fucking not boo me. That was weird. You know what I mean? They're yeah, back there yeah. painting me as a fucking heel, and I go out there, and everybody sat on their hands for the whole match. And I'll tell you, a babyface match is a motherfucker. You know? And I, I just... It, it was it was a tough, tough, tough moment. Really tough moment. So what did you think, like, when Watts leaves, I know you said you were insecure, but what did you think of Bischoff, though, initially? Did you think, like, uh, this guy's, you know, he's, he's green to the business, he's a bit of a rookie, like... What, what did you think just of him first? Well, like I said, brother, I, you know, from the get go, I was, I was never going to be a part of the clique. Never. Cause I fucking didn't do the gas and I didn't fucking bodybuild cause I couldn't stand the fucking mentality of those people's people. And when I went to the dressing room, I always sat in the fucking room with the jobbers because they were fucking fun nice guys that when you got done working at night they would take you out and have food at their cars and we'd barbecue and get high and drink i mean they were just fucking great guys i couldn't stand the ego of the fucking dressing room so i always fucking dressed with the jabronis because they were always fucking funny and great people i hate using that name but you know those guys were amazing amazing people and so i always dressed with them and uh you know, I, Eric didn't like me from the get-go. I think he put up with me. But, and then when Mick and I hit it off and things started actually going pretty good for Mick and I, I heard I heard Bischoff talking about that match in a shoot with one of the fucking guys that was doing the show about, you know, the craziest shit that was ever on WCW. And that match was one of them. And the only thing Mick, or the only thing that Eric ever talked about in that match and posthumously i'm talking about this was an interview done a couple years ago was about mick foley and he didn't mention my name he didn't mention the nasty boys names he only talked about mick because by then he was in the wwf and mick was still hot and on fire and uh so you know eric didn't want to take a chance on burning any kind of bridge with mick so the only guy he talked about was mick I, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't have any friends in the offices. That was my biggest problem because I couldn't be a fucking stooge and I couldn't fucking, you know, I wasn't going to call Vince and tell him what was going wrong on the tour. Or, you know, I just not who I am, you know? And, uh, so it was, um, 
was a tough time. Was uh, Bischoff referring to that awesome Chicago street fight you guys had, the nasty yeah, boys and you yeah, and Nick? Yeah. And then, it, and then when I fucking hurt Nobbs, he pulled me aside underneath the bleachers. And because Nobbs was in there crying like a fucking baby. And uh, he comes over to me, pulls me out. He goes, what the fuck are you doing, Max? You can't do that. And I said, I looked him right in the eyeballs. And I said, you know something, Eric? I had a good friend tell me once, there comes a time in your life when you got to say no. And if you don't say no, the only person you got to fucking blame is the man in the mirror. And the nasty boys have hurt me for the last fucking time, which was a lie because they beat the shit out of Mick and I at the fucking street fight. For, for that one fucking shoulder that I broke of knobs, they fucking, they smashed Mick in the head with a fucking shovel. They hit, you know, that last fucking table he hit me with at the end of that match, my it just rang my fucking bell. I can't tell you how many times the nasty boys hurt Mick and I. And uh, the only thing I regret in that show is that I, that street fight is that I didn't fucking do some hard way shit to them. That's the only thing I regret. Was there an issue with you guys in the nasty boys? Or is that just the way they're working? Just me. But there is that like normal that they're going to work that stiff? Yeah. Well, fucking nasty boys just work that stiff and, and everybody who knows the nasty boys will tell you that they hurt people. They, nobody could trust them. Cause they fucking, you know, I always said this, their fucking punches look like shit. Their stuff looked like shit and they hurt and it hurt. It's like the worst combination. Your work fucking stinks and it fucking hurts. You know what I mean? They were good at telling stories, but my fucking God, they, they hurt people. And I'll tell you, when I walked in the fucking dressing room after fucking doing knobs of shoulder, I wish I I wish I could fucking I wish I could reproduce that somehow. Because everybody in the room stood up. They hated the nasty boys. When the fucking when the fucking uh papers would come out for who they had to work with, the 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 kids would all of those young boys would all run up to that fucking list. And fucking first thing they would find is the nasty boys and who was working with the nasty boys because they hurt everybody. With like teaming up with Foley, obviously you're a heel and you turn face, you team with Foley. Did you like Mick? Did you get along with Mick? I fucking love Mick. I I adore Mick with all my heart. It was Mick that decided he didn't want to work with me anymore once again. And uh, I've told that story. I'm not going to tell it a bunch, but Mick or Mick, kind of broke my heart but i still love him i forgive him i have no qualms with him and to be quite honest with you i would love to do an event or two with him i would just be out of my mind you know nick my uh my my uh, manager we've talked about this and i think we could sell a couple autographs if mick and i got together and uh, did a did a show someplace together because mick's a fucking superstar anyway and uh you know it would it would be fun. I would love to do something with Mick. I'd love to. So he wanted to team with Sullivan, or he wanted to be a singles guy. Why why not team with you? You know, I'm not going to talk about that one this time because that that's that's a pretty painful time in my life. You know, I, I was losing everything at breakneck speed right then, and um, when 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 I lost Mick. Um, it was, I, you know, those are the kind of moments you seriously doubt if you're in the right place, you know, 
because I didn't understand it. We were hotter. We were on fucking fire. And I didn't understand it. And you're going to go with a guy that's half your size? And yet you got a fucking guy that's a fucking six foot six fucking shooter in your corner and does great interviews with you. I, it just crushed me. And I didn't know to know until years later why that happened. And I, I've told that story and I tell that story. If you really want to find it, I'll probably end up telling it again. I don't like telling it because in one sense of the word, it's not very friendly story. Um, and I don't want, I don't, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from Mick Foley. I love Mick and I love what he's done and I respect the shit out of him. Um, and I just hope that my apologies and the things I'm saying, like I said, I would love to do, I would love to do something with Nick in the future. So I'm going to let that sleep in dog live for a while. So Mick obviously decides to move on. Does he tell Bischoff like, like how does that, or does he tell Sullivan book who's booking? Like how does he I, just decide to move on? If I remember right, I think I got told the night of the show, I wasn't working that night. I think he told me Kevin's coming out and you're going to come out and smash a guitar over fucking Sags's head. And, uh, I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I'm going to switch partners and go with Kevin. I'm like, what did I do? And I never found out until years later when Mick called me and explained it. And um, once again, just another one of those moments where for whatever reason, it wasn't, it wasn't my turn, you know? It just wasn't my turn in the wrestling business or for whatever reason. Uh, I, I went through some really, really physically, I went through some horrible things. Um, mentally, I went through some horrible things. And like I said, it, it, it was so crushing to finally dig my way out of it. And had I not had a wonderful family, my daughter was so amazing. She would, she was so patient with me. Because I was babysitting now when I got home. <laughs> and she would just, she was so patient with me. And finally, I drug my ass out of bed and, you know, uh, started being a normal human again. The wrestling business had finally gone away. I had to decide what I was going to do. And like I said, I went and registered for this agency in Salt Lake. Salt Lake, Utah has a huge film uh, industry because the Congress there has gone out of their way to make sure they establish laws that will, will attract Hollywood money. And they've done a good job of it. And I, I was literally getting some really good parts. And then the whole thing happened with the Max Payne thing. And it's just, I had, the, you know, it's that moment in time. Like when they stole my name for the video game, it's like, you know, what the fuck have I done that deserves, you know, you can't help it. I don't care who you are. If that happens to you, you can't help but go, what, what did I do? You know, what didn't I do? And uh, in the end, a lot of the questions were answered and a lot of them, I had nothing to do with it. I really didn't. In the end, it was their own, the people around me, it was their feelings, not mine that caused me to, and it was a lot of it was really untrue, just like the knobs thing for him to blame me for him fucking being an asshole on that throw. You know, 
Well, Hogan bought it. So what did Hogan do? Went straight to fucking Vince and said, you better not fucking deal with this guy. And Vince did ignore that in the end and let me go there. But then I got there and one thing after another just kept falling through. Boom, boom. And that's what I just decided. Sometimes, once again, the man in the mirror says, you better be saying no, it's time to walk away. And so I did. I want to mention just a couple random guys because when you were in WCW, especially with uh, Foley, with Cactus Jack, I mean, you guys were definitely getting over. But did you work Vader there? I'm trying to remember. I thought I you did. did. I, I thought I you did. worked him. Yeah. And Vader was very fucking generous with me, and it was because of Harley. Vader, Leon was very generous with me, you know, and I, I thought that was, I thought that was fucking incredible. And partly because Leon, Leon's a badass, but once again, I, listen, I'm not I'm not going to paint myself as a badass because I'm not. Now I'm 60 fucking years old. I'm certainly not now. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I had a rep that I probably really didn't deserve. Um, but then incidents like me fucking doing knobs said different, you know. So, um once again, that wasn't really a choice of mine. That was Nobbs's choice to not trust me, not mine. You know, I told him I was going to do that. I told him I'm going to belly to belly you. Just go with me. You'll be fine. And uh, he didn't listen because he was fucking Nobbs. He knows everything. You know, so uh, it, it, it was those kinds of things just continued to happen to me in my career, which when I left, you know, those are the kinds of things you wake up at night going, ah, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> so, but, yeah. But Vader was good to you, though. That's great. I always got along good with Leon. Always. I mean, Leon was one of those people that I never had. I never had a problem with Leon, ever. I met him in Japan when he first came and started doing the Vader thing. And then, you know, I, uh, I knew him there. I did the road with him and Harley a few times. So, yeah, I... I got along great with Leon. It's funny because, you know, a lot of guys will complain. He stiffed him to this, to that. But Sting said he was just one of his favorite guys to work with. Foley loved working with him. You know, like certain guys, I guess, he was great with. You know, I would have – I'll tell you right now, if I would have fucking used my head, I would have ended up in Japan with Leon because I, I wouldn't have been afraid to stand in the middle of the fucking ring and throw punches with him. You know, I, I, I was capable of handling myself. So I would have loved to have had the kind of match I watched Leon have in Japan and just fucking, because the Japanese just eat that shit up, just stand in the middle of fucking ring and just boom, you know, and fucking throw one back at him and boom, you know, the fucking crowd would have just been with it the whole time. And, uh, you know, I just, I got offered to go to Japan and wrestle Gary Albright and, Looking back to this day, another moment in time, I could just kick myself in the ass for not going and doing it. I would have made great money. It would have kept me in. But, you know, once again, I can't look back at those kinds of things and have anything but respect for the fact that it it forced me into uh, another world. And that, that world was the one I needed to be a part of, you know, was being with my family and making sure I took care of my family. So. 
as far as you in, in the wrestling business, you said you had a couple of regrets, like Gary Albright and stuff. Is there any other like real regrets you had? Would it almost be getting out earlier or like, what do you like? What's the mindset of kind of any regrets you might've had towards the business? I think the only, I'll tell you, let me tell you something that happened at a WCW show one night. They were, something was going wrong and I don't remember what it was. And uh, somebody said, get Max to go out and play. And so they put me, they, they just fucking come, yo, Max, you're going to, you're on, you're going to go play. And I'm like, what, what the fuck? So I grabbed my guitar, got it, got all my shit together, give it to the fucking dudes and everything. And uh, I went out and played and I didn't have a monitor. I was playing through the PA, but I could hear good enough that I could play. And I went out there and I played. And when I shut the fucking guitar off, when I turned it down, I'll never forget looking up at those people. And they were they were having a good time with me. And I tried to play some more and they cut my guitar off from the PA. And I think the only thing I regret and now maybe I can resolve that is I think wrestling fans would have really fucking dug what I brought to the table. If either one of the organizations would have really given me an opportunity to show what I was capable of, you know, um, I didn't get that chance. And the only regret I have is that the wrestling fans didn't get to see me in my prime, um, do those things. You know, now I'm an old man and uh, I'm still I can still play and I can still rock, but I can't wrestle. And uh, I regret the only thing I really regret is not. Taking my whole career to another level, but in fairness, I tried and I failed. And uh, that's why I was going to name them. I, I don't know what the name of the movie is going to be, but the original name of the movie was going to be the thing that should not be um, because that's what I felt like. Is that a great Metallica song? It is. <laughs> it Baker. is. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now I can think of, think of it in my head. Uh, so as far as like the documentary, children watch the sea, pray for father roaming free. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Of course, you know, that. you know, that's the kind of fucking line, the whole song. If you listen to the yeah. thing that should not be is it's, it really filled. I mean, Almost when I first listened to that song, I'm getting goosebumps again. Um, when I first really started listening to that song, I, at the time, I was really fucking dealing with that shit personally. I did, I felt like the thing that should not be, you know? And uh, so that's why, you know, I did everything. I did everything because I wanted, I wanted to make fans happy. I just want to make people smile. You know, that's who I am in, inherently. I, I wanted the wrestling fans to fucking just, I really wanted them to walk out of a show and just be fucking happy skipping down the sidewalk and stop and look at each other and go, what the fuck was that? I've never seen that at a wrestling show before. You know, that's what I wanted. I wanted to fucking turn the star spangled banner into massive musical events for WrestleMania. You know, I wanted to have the bet, like I said, a fucking, like a band, you know, a, a band at the big events 
that was like the Paul, like Paul Schaefer on, you know, the music, you had a musical director out there and the band was there and you fucking did crazy shit and fun shit and anybody that could perform, you know, you just had that really great effect and uh, it just never happened. And so now maybe they're, Maybe the fucking cool shit is in the story of it. I don't know. The thing about the documentary is that has been out there for a while. Like, I guess wrestlers were talking about how Max Payne was filming backstage. Like, so that kind of rumor was out there for a while that there is this, you know, this secret tape and stuff. How come, like, how come it's now coming to, like, light? Like, where has it been? Like, did you lose it? Did you just find it? Did you forget about it? Like, where, where has it been? You know, I, uh, to be honest with you, I thought I was going to have to die in order for it to come out. I thought I was going to have to, you know, I, like I said, I, I'm surprised I'm 60. So at some point in my brain, I thought, well, the only thing, this, the only way this is ever going to see the light of day is after I'm dead. And now at 60 years old, I'd like to get another 20 years out of my life as it is and not be a wrestling statistic. Um, so I just... You know, I just left that, I let that sleeping dog lie because I wasn't, I wasn't ready to come and fucking deal with the shit that I'm going to deal with. I'm going to deal with some shit because, you know, there's some, well, we'll just wait and see. I, maybe not. Maybe, maybe everybody will love it. I don't know. But um, I just left it in the background and uh, knew someday it was going to come out one way or another. And uh, now it's all, you know, I met this guy in New York named Nick Christie who has taken me under his wing. I needed a manager desperately. I actually always needed a manager because I need somebody to look after me because I'm pretty much a typical fucking musician. You know, I'm, I'm kind of airheaded sometimes, especially when I start thinking about music. If I get baked and start thinking about music and fucking writing songs and shit, I, I can leave in a heartbeat, which is what I love about music. So Nick Christie took me under his wing and I, you know, I, I got a great manager now that can look after me and make sure that I, you know, he called me and reminded me, brother, I would have forgot. He yeah. called me tonight and reminded me because I, I had a rough afternoon. And so he called me and said, Hey Max. And I'm like, Oh my God, thank you so much. I need that in my life. And Nick, Nick is really good at that. So, you know, I hope that uh, he's one of those people that if, if you ever needed a manager, I certainly recommend calling Nick because he's been nothing but great to me. And uh, we're going to do some crazy fun things together. Real, here's the other thing that I bring to the table I'm really excited about. So not only do I have this great wrestling stuff, I'm also an inventor. And I've invented a lot of really cool things. My my biggest thing that I've invented is I've invented invented this really great lubricant for your guitar. And then I found out that it's not just for the guitar. It's great on all kinds of things. And it's, I'm going to, I really intend on revolutionizing um, the uh, portable uh, miniature lubrication world. Um, this oil is really amazing. And my intention is to have it on every cash register in the world. You know, one of those things that when you yep. roll up to get cigarettes or buy a beer and you see that and you go, God, I need some of that for the locks in my truck or, you know, whatever. My door hinges squeak. Um, this shit is amazing. Really amazing. It took me 30 years to develop this oil. Um, that's one thing. And I've got I've got tons and tons of inventions. I've got another band that I want to release eventually. Um, I got 
tons and tons of more music that I just need to go in. I probably got another two or three records around living insanity, if that so presents itself. And if not, I've got four or five records with this other band I'm developing. And um, so I just look forward to the future because I'm excited to show people the real Max Payne, if you will. So as we head towards the finish here, we head towards the wind down. I always like to say, like, if somebody's going to look you up on YouTube or something, you know, Max Payne versus, like, let's talk about, you know, some positive stuff. Favorite matches, favorite opponents, somebody's going to, you know, do a YouTube playlist. Who's on it? Max Payne versus who? Well, the first one, my brother, I'm going to tell you, this is a little different of an answer you're going to get from anybody. The first one was Max Payne versus the National Anthem. Because <laughs> you can't fuck up the National Anthem. Yeah. Yeah, you agree. fuck the national anthem up, and you're going to be fucking. Which would have been fine. I would have got heat for it. That would have been a fun angle to go out there and fucking destroy it, and then go, "Oh fuck you guys, I can play it," and then actually play it. You know, the possibilities were limitless. But the national anthem, I'll tell you, I practiced nonstop for fucking days to get that song right. Um, that would have been one. Second. Second person, I'm going to have to go for Fit Finley. Fit taught me probably more about the wrestling business than anybody I ever worked with. He was amazing. And in fact, the first street fight I did was with uh, Chris against Fit and uh, the Colonel. And uh, I just loved working in Europe. I loved learning from the English guys. Um, so I'd probably say fit. And then I got to tell you, man, Johnny be bad. He was amazing. I loved Johnny and we had so much fun. Everybody watches, you know, I'm the first fucking dude that ever shot anybody in wrestling. <laughs> to this day, it blows me away. Um, I will tell you this about that. Now, Johnny and I practiced that in a parking garage. We lived in the same apartment complex in Marietta. And we practiced that in a, car, a parking garage and he'd filled it with jello so it wouldn't kill him. <laughs> so it didn't have right. confetti and all that shit in it. It just had jello in it, but it made such a beautiful fucking, you know, splash radius. It was great. And uh, then one night I was working with Johnny and we had some, we had some fun. And one night I told him, I said, Johnny duck. And I fucking pulled back and, threw a punch and I ain't shitting you. I, I, if I told you to duck and you didn't duck, you're getting hit. Cause I wouldn't pull a punch. Wouldn't do it. And I threw this punch and I told him to duck and he didn't hear me or didn't whatever the case may be. And I hit that fucker so hard and he didn't go down. And I got to tell you, he had my respect instantly right then. I spent the next two weeks every night in the dressing room apologizing to him for it because it's fucking my fault. Shut up. And I'm going, yeah. I said, give me a receipt on that potato. If he'd have given me a given me a receipt, it probably would have knocked me out. <laughs> he was Dick a boxer. Golden Gloves champion. Dick yeah, Golden right. Yeah. yeah. God yeah. damn, he would have kicked my ass in boxing because I ain't I ain't worth a shit as a boxer. I'll tell you that right now. So that feud is going to be bad. Um, let me see if there's anybody else in a match that you know. The first big match I had was with Konga, the Barbarian in Japan. And I'm so fucking green. I mean, I am just, it's its fun. I, I don't even know if I could watch it. But Joe was so fucking good to me. And, you know, I, I just, 
there's a there's so many people in the wrestling business that were good to me that it's it's uh it's difficult to single anybody out for being a dick because most everybody was just really really kind and really good to me interesting thing about the johnny b bad wcw feud was like your big feud there you, know, you fight a clash of champions you fight a beach blast like you said you blow the gun up in in, in his face you scar his face he's got to wear the mask you do the mask versus the, 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 the uh guitar he thing. Had another mask under it <laughs> yep <laughs> so that was just an interesting kind of like side feud you know in wcw well, it was meant to be musician versus musician, right? right. Little Richard, so, yeah, yeah, and 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 so, yeah, that was a that was a really that was a really fun time. I, I really enjoyed working with Johnny. Um, yeah, I would probably say Johnny's at the top. I've worked with a lot of people though that were just amazingly giving, amazingly good in the ring, and so I'm nothing but proud of all of that. Work Ric Flair and Steve Austin too, right? Yeah. Yeah, I worked with Flair, I worked with Steve Austin, worked with a bunch of folks, man. It was a good, it was a good deal. I was I was very lucky. Now so, far... sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, as far as those guys, did you work them a lot or was that just the one the battle ball with you and Scorpio against them? Or did you work them many times? No. no. That it was always just a fucking it was always just the big shows. And, and, and that's, see, that's where WCW fucked up a lot of times, too, is they, they didn't carry the angles over as well. I mean, Vince was genius at that, you know, carrying the angles over into the house shows because it meant something, you know. And WCW did it a little bit for the big stars, but not for the whole car. They just, they just didn't have the guys that could pull that off at the time. I don't think anyway, because they, they, you know, in the, in the end they did, they, you know, they hired everybody they could when the NWO went there right after I left. And quite honestly, you know, um, the NWO is another classic example. Could there have been anybody more perfect to be part of the NWO than Max Payne? I don't think so. But what the fuck do I know? Fucking uh razor ramon and kevin were all wearing fucking pink tights before and then one day they all are wearing the same shit i was wearing in the ring and yet you know vince wouldn't let me be max Payne when i went there you make the call for yourself i, I don't know what the reason for that is and like i said you know they might just say because max is a fucking piece of shit and we all hate him that's fine i wish they would have just told me that directly but they none of them had the balls to do that so you know it just ended up being painful and um, in the end, it felt good to leave at the time, you know, and be away from it and take my head out of it because the wrestling business is a skull fuck from beginning to end. And you got to be good at it. You got to be damn good at it, you know? And uh, I wasn't. I wasn't good at the backstage part. With you, you were talking a little bit before with injuries. Did you have a painkiller addiction? Was that a big, big problem uh, for you? Like everybody did. Everybody did. Fuck yes. Because how do you, you know, that's the part that people don't understand. How the fuck do you get on the road and just be in pain all the time? You know, you can't do it. You just can't do it. And so that's what happened. You know, I just, you know, I, I, I was going down the road and you get beat up and you get tore up and then you start doing pain pills and then pain pills lead to volumes. And, you know, there's so many people out there that want to be in your life. They just give you drugs and, you know, 
I can't tell you how many how easy it was to get drugs at that time. I mean, it's just nothing to it. Prescription drugs too. Just from being a famous wrestler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any no. dark any doctor you walked into would give you pills. So not necessarily from the boys, like from from like you said, from doctors and other people. Yeah. It was easy. Yeah, yeah, it was easy. Yeah, it was nothing to it. So and you know, at the time, uh, opioids weren't addictive. Obviously, obviously, the guy that said that's never been dope sick. Right. Yep. So, what would you say is like the lasting legacy, the stamp of Max Payne that you left behind on the business? Like, if somebody said, "Like, oh, Max Payne," what would they say? What's the stamp? Well, right now, um, I would say it's an unfinished suite. I would say that the 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 prelude's been written. The overture's been written, um, the body has been written, and the ending is still up in the air, but the body of my work has never been seen because the body of my work rotated around music, you know, as well, because I wanted to leave the wrestling business to be in and do the music, and I wanted to do it for the wrestling business. So, you know... Um, I would say the lasting legacy I would leave right now, if I died today or tomorrow, would be unfinished because nobody really knows what happened during that time. And I think I think it's an intriguing story, and I think it's worth hearing and worth telling. So, brother, you like me, you don't like me. If you're a wrestling fan, there is something in this for everybody. And I think I think when people you know, actually hear some of the songs we wrote. I think it's going to be, it's going to be, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I tell you, everything's been so positive since I came back. I got great feelings about things and all we can do now, John, is just hide and watch and see what happens next. And it feels like on the, like the autograph scene and stuff like that, it's like, wow, Max Payne is back. Like that, that's super rare because you were out of the game for a while. You know what I mean? Yeah, 30 years. Cool. Yeah. And that's the part that I love, man. I mean, how fucking great that I can go make money and not have to fall down. You know, I, I never thought that I didn't real. I got, I got to be honest with you, John. I didn't realize that until this guy called me. I didn't know there were fucking wrestling autograph memorabilia things going on. I didn't know it. I just, I was so unplugged from the wrestling business. I, you know, people ask me, Hey, you remember that? Um, no. I didn't watch wrestling. I never watched it again. I turned my back and I just said, fuck it. I don't, because I'd watch it. And I just want to be a part of it again. And I get those old feelings. It's just like drugs. I swear to God, it's you, you watch you. I'd watch wrestling and all of a sudden I was fucking on my way to New York, you know? And I'm like, stop, stop. You, you got a different life right now, you know? And I just had a feeling that sometime in my life that this would, this opportunity would roll around. And so I'm excited to show the people what I did and what I was doing. And I'm willing to let the chips fall where they fall. If it falls apart and nothing happens and it's shitty music and the movie's stupid and nobody wants to see it, well, then so be it. Then, then at least I failed honorably and I never gave up on my dream. I personally think, I think wrestling fans are just going to have a blast with this because there's nothing else like it. 
Nobody else has ever done this. Nobody else has ever done anything like this in the wrestling business. And I love Chris Jericho. I love the guys that, you know, are playing and that have played in the WWF and done the WWF things. But in fairness, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, there was one guy that preceded them. And that was me. And um, I'd like to believe I had some influence on guys like Chris Jericho and I don't know the the guy that plays the guitar on the WWF now, but you know, it's one of those things that I would like, yeah, I would, I would like to believe that, that they probably were a Max Payne fan at some point in their, in their lives. And also with the autograph thing, it's, I, there are so many fans that love the rare guys. Like I have never had his autograph. Like that's one thing, even virtual or conventions. That's one thing you have on a lot of other guys too. It's like, Oh my God, I don't have Max Payne. I don't, you know, the go, the guys that want everybody. Yeah. Nobody had you for a long time. I can't I mean, tell you. Really, how, very cool. I can't tell you how many encyclopedias I've signed. <laughs> oh right. man. Yeah. And it's going to get, it, I mean, we're going to, the, I'm going to the two biggest shows in the future. First, I'm going to the big show in New York on the, what is it? The, 29th or the 30th no it's the first of march to the third there's a big show in new york and then i'm going with uh nick uh christie and uh think signatures we're going to uh wrestlecon and uh it's good i i i'm excited maybe nothing will happen maybe something will happen i i just don't know i'm prepared for anything though do you have any other plugs or anything you want to get out there right? or where everybody could reach you or even reach Nick? If you ever want to get a hold of me, the best way to get a hold of me is through Think Signatures. Just go, you don't even have to know how. Just contact Think. If you go to thinksignatures.com, there's a contact me um, for Nick. And anybody who wants to get a hold of me can get a hold of me through Nick. That's the easiest and best and most most truthful way because I'm the shit at <laughs> taking care of fans. I really am. And when it comes to that, now, if I'm with you and I'm there, no problem. But, you know, I'm just I'm I'm kind of a typical musician when it comes to that. I'm kind of a fucking airhead. And, and to be honest with you, um, I'm one of those guys that I don't spend time on stuff that doesn't fit into the collaboration of things I'm involved in. You know what I mean? Yep. So I, uh, I don't social media very well. And uh, thank God I got somebody like Nick to look after me. So yeah, just get a hold of Think Signatures and Nick Christie and he will take care of it from there. And if he says I'm going to be there, I'm going to fucking be there unless I'm dead. That's the only way I won't be there. Um, I, I, I would never tell somebody I'm going to do something and then not do it. And I've done that a couple of times in my life and it still bothers me to this day. So, uh, I made a commitment to myself. I'm going to come back and do this business. I'm going to do it right. And, um, I'm really doing this because I didn't realize there were still Max Payne and Man Mountain Rock fans out there. I'll be honest with you. I just, I just didn't think so. And, uh, it's, it's been unbelievable. The fans have been so incredible to me. I wouldn't even know where to start. Max, they're out there for sure. But thank you so much for all the time tonight. Really appreciate it. John, it was my pleasure, my friend. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. 
You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron and also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother.